We're starting a new series today. It's going to be a relatively short series. It's from the Old Testament, as you have seen, those of you who've been around a little while. I like to alternate, if I can, between Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, so I chose the little book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets. This is the third of the minor prophets that we've done in the history of this church, Jonah. And uh, then we did Malachi not too long ago, and now we're doing Haggai. And if you ask me why Haggai... And maybe you've heard me say this sort of thing before. Well, the, the sufficient answer is because it's in the Bible. Uh, but also, I'm trying to choose something that will fit kind of between now and the summer months. And so what we've been doing is we've been going backwards in history. So Malachi was right at the end. Now we're backing it up a little bit from there to hear Haggai. So Malachi was after Haggai, and we will be looking at the first 11 verses today. Haggai 1, 1 to 11, hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I could ask if anybody's had this experience But actually, it'd be easier to ask, has anyone not had this experience? The experience of opening your wallet and finding less money in it than you thought should be there. Or opening up your bank account and finding that the balance was was less than you thought should be there. Or investing in some sort of a project and then getting to the end of the project and looking back on it and And not being quite satisfied, it just didn't live up to all that you had invested in it. And it it left you still dissatisfied, even after all that effort. So I ask, is there anyone who hasn't had that sort of an experience? I think that's common to humans. And it was particularly the experience during the time of the prophet Haggai. And God sent Haggai... To tell them why. In addition to the normal experience of dissatisfaction in this world that humans have, there was a particular reason in the time of Haggai 
that their their productivity wasn't satisfying them, and they were getting to the the end of the paycheck before they got to the end of the month, as it were. And they were not having enough, or at least feeling like they didn't have enough. Now, this is a a remarkable dating here. In verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Now, this is relatively close to us. This is getting towards the end of the Old Testament. And so, the records we have are quite precise. And so, we can date this to within a day. To within a day. And there will be three different dates in this book uh, of these four different sermons that he preached. And so, this message was preached within the accuracy of a day on August 29th, 520 B.C. Now, you wonder about the, the exactitude of this reference, and it could be because this was a, a new experience for the people of God. Not a completely new But in the new situation in which they found themselves, it was new. This was after the exile to Babylon. This was after the people had returned from exile to their own country. And this was the first time that God had sent a prophet to speak to them after that experience of exile. So, uh, very precisely, when did God start speaking to us again uh, after the exile? Well, on August 29th, 520 B.C., write it down. That's when it happened. That's when God had a word for us once again. Now, we should review a little bit of Old Testament history quickly to see how we got to this point and where we are. As you will recall, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, God calls Abraham. He promises him the promised land. He has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They go down to Egypt. Their descendants become slaves 400 years through the leadership of Moses. They come up out of Egypt through the leadership of Joshua. They conquer the land that God had promised to his people. And then for a few hundred years, there's a time of chaos with the judges. There's a time of alternate stability and chaos with the kings. The the two the, the kingdom of, of Israel divides into north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel, idolatrous, God spreads them out, sends them out into the nations and mixes those ten tribes up with the nations. And then there's a, there are a couple tribes left in Judah. And then God deals with them and he doesn't, he doesn't disperse them to the nations. He keeps at least some of them together, but he sends them to Babylon in exile They're conquered by by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he takes them into Babylon and leaves some in the land. Well, then in 538 B.C., God raised up the Persian king, because now the Persians have conquered the Babylonians, and he raises up the Persian king Cyrus to decree that the people can go back. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild Jerusalem, and they can rebuild the temple there. And so, the people go back. Uh, some of them anyway, they go back and they begin working on the, the city and they begin working on the temple. Then 16 years later, the kingdom is consolidated in the hands of the man we meet here, Darius the king. And he consolidates his rule over the Persian Empire, the largest empire in history up till this point. 
And so he is the most powerful man on the planet with the largest kingdom empire that's ever existed up to that point. And the Jews, they started building the temple and then they got discouraged because their enemies all around were trying to discourage them. And you can read about this in Ezra Nehemiah, what happened there. Well, what happened there is that God raised up a prophet to say, get back to work on the temple. Now, to whom does he speak? To whom does he speak? It says that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, Zerubbabel was the, he was the grandson of the second to last king of Judah. As Babylon was taking over Judah, sending them into exile, well, one of these kings, Jehoiachin, got captured and sent into exile. And now we have the grandson of that second to last king of Judah. In other words, we have the heir to the throne. We have the the line of David here. And he is the heir to the throne of Israel. So, that's the first one. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Actually, Shealtiel was his, was his uncle who may have adopted him because it doesn't look like Shealtiel had any, any offspring of his own. And then it describes him as the governor of Judah. And then it says to Joshua, which is the name Yeshua, we say Jesus in the New Testament, uh, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he was a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. So, we have these two lines. We have the line of David in Zerubbabel. We have the line of Aaron in Joshua. And we have the heir to the throne of David, the heir to the kingship, the kingdom, and we have the priest here, the high priest, who represents the people before God. And we also also have Haggai, who was a prophet. Now, both of these, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they returned from exile with the first group that came back. So they were some of the first ones back. And so here we have, we have the prophet Haggai, we have the priest Aaron, a descendant of Aaron, a Joshua, and we have the heir to the throne, the heir to the kingdom, who is Zerubbabel. And these are the three offices in the Old Testament. There is prophet, priest, and king. These are the three offices. And there's some occasional combinations of these offices. Uh, sometimes you have a, a prophet like David who's also a king. Or you have a priest like Zechariah who's also a prophet. But there was one no-no. One that should not be combined. And that was the priesthood with the, the kingdom. And so those are, were not to be combined. So we have these three here. But there's a problem. And we notice this immediately. So we're, we're getting pumped because we say, prophet, priest, and king, they're coming back together again. Isn't this grand? Is something important going to happen here now? These three are coming back together. We have the prophet. We have the priest. But we really don't have the king, do we? We have the one that, that should be the king, but he's not. Look who's the king here. It describes Zerubbabel as the governor of Judah. And this word for governor is a loan word from another language. It's not even a, a native word, not a native Hebrew word, which emphasizes that he's just placed there by some other foreign power. Who's the king? Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king. Something's gone wrong here, folks. Prophet, we have the prophet, check. Priest, Descendant of Aaron, check. King, Darius? 
What, what, what's Darius doing on, on the throne, ruling over God's people? What is this, this pagan foreign king doing when we have a perfectly good candidate here in Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne? Now, we have, in essence, we could say the displacement here. And that's how it starts. The displacement of the rightful king of Israel. He's not where he should be. But that is not the biggest problem in this text. The displacement of the king is not the biggest problem in the text. In fact, the displacement of the king is a symptom of the biggest problem in this text. And so we keep reading. Haggai is given this word, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And this expression, Lord of hosts, it appears 14 times. In Haggai, 14 times Lord of Hosts. Now, unfortunately, this this translation hosts that doesn't do it for us. It's it's a it's a traditional translation of this this title, but we don't know what a host is. Uh, it, it, it's uh, in our language, it's somebody who receives guests, right? But but it also can mean a great number, a great throngs of people. But particularly here, it's a certain kind of throng of people. It's armies. So here we have the the commander of the armies is presented here. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of armies. And what does this Lord of armies say? And why does he present himself like that here? Well, we just met, we just met in verse 1, someone we could call the baddest dude on the planet. Darius, I mean, he was the most powerful man on the planet at that point. The, 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 the biggest emperor who's ever appeared in human history up to that point. And now we meet God 14 times. Who's God? God is the Lord of armies. And his armies dwarf the armies of the Persians. And so this, is a, this, this presentation of God as the Lord of armies is, is saying, no, Darius isn't the one calling the shots here. Darius is not the one who is in control of this situation. And so we have the Lord of hosts. But what's the position of the Lord of hosts? Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's the real problem here. They were saying it wasn't time to build the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord was the temple. And another real quick review of the temple. As the people came out of Egypt, they were a nomadic people. They had a tent, the tabernacle. And that's where God met with them. And it was in the center of the camp. Then they became established and they had a king. They conquered the land. And then David wanted to build the temple. God said, no, your son will do it. The son built it. Solomon, he built the temple. And that's the temple that that the Babylonians took to the ground. That's the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. And we have to give it to the people. If you look at their historical situation, they probably had some good arguments why it wasn't time to build the temple. I mean, the economy was not great. We're going to get to the economy in a little bit. But the economy was not great to be taking on such a big project. There was also a a political question. Well, you know, the enemies all around, they weren't happy with this idea of the temple. And it's it's probably better if you're a, a small group 
and you have enemies all around, it's probably better not to ruffle uh, the feathers of the, the stronger nations around you. So it's, it's not time to do it yet. There was probably also a historical argument against building the temple because who's the one, after all, who decreed the building of the temple? Well, it was Cyrus. And they could say, well, Cyrus is the one who told us to do it, and so we're not really necessarily uh, beholden to him. And so maybe it's not something that we really need to do quite yet until we get a word from the Lord. And there could have been a theological reason as well why not to build the temple. People could have said, you know, Jeremiah said that in 70 years, in 70 years we'll rebuild, and it's not quite 70 years yet, so maybe we should wait a few more years before we rebuild the temple. Lots of arguments, plausible arguments. But these were also convenient arguments. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet Haggai. Is it a time? So you say it's not time. It's not time to build the Lord's house. But is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, they had time for houses. It wasn't a problem of having time for houses. It was which house? They had time for their own houses. But they didn't have time for the house of the Lord. It just hadn't come yet. And then if you look at verse 9, it talks about the fact that they uh, they were running after. It says, my house, the end of verse 9, my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself. The word is runs after his own house. So they weren't just chipping away at their houses. They were investing in their own houses, running after their own houses, while the house of the Lord sat in ruins. Now, there's a tension in the Old Testament about the temple. And this tension shows up right at the beginning. Solomon finishes the temple, and it was a magnificent temple. Magnificent temple. And Solomon's very pleased with his work. And then he looks at this temple, and he says, Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. God is going, to build, is going to live in a house that I built? The, the God who created heaven and earth is going to dwell in this house that I built? And this is the tension you find through the Old Testament. On the one hand, on the one hand, it's not like a pagan temple that contains God. And yet, at the same time, the temple is not unimportant because it, it represents God. It's where God meets with His people. It represents His presence in the middle of His people. And so it has theological and practical importance as the meeting place with God, where the, the priest goes in and meets and represents the people. So it's, it doesn't contain God but it was still significant as a visible representation of God's presence in the center of His people and where they could meet with Him. So, what were the people saying? By leaving the temple unfinished, what were they saying to God? They were saying, we really don't want you here. We really don't want you in the center of our lives. Sure, we want you somewhere, We're not denying you. We just don't want you right here. We want you perhaps at our beck and call, but but not here, not in the center of our existence, not as the, 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 the central point 
that, that controls everything around it, not that which, which governs us and, and, and decides uh, uh, the will and the will that we should follow. We, we don't want that kind of influence in our lives. Just, just sort of be there somewhere, but, but not, not, this, not this close, not right in the middle controlling everything. I once got invited to a symposium at a seminary and uh, they said, oh, you know, fly up and we'll pay you back and get the hotel and we'll pay you back. And, and then, uh, then I got to the symposium and it was really nice. They had gift bags for the, for the participants and they had, they had tent cards with the names of all the participants and their titles and everything around the table. And I went in and, and I, I began to panic because I couldn't find a place with my name around the table. And then I, I couldn't find a gift bag Either and I sort of panicked. I thought, "Oh no, a- am I not supposed to be here? A- a- was I not really invited? Did I misunderstand? Did I fly up here and get a hotel and rent a car and and come and and they really don't want me here?" It was a very uncomfortable sort of situation, and so I kind of sheepishly went to the organizer and I said, "Excuse me, um, I didn't see my place." And she was mortified. It was just an oversight. She very quickly went out and arranged everything, and all was good. But what if it hadn't been just a clerical error? What if I were there, and they didn't really want me there? That's what the people were saying to God. You're sort of kind of here, and we're glad for that, but we don't really want you right here in the middle of us. What were the consequences of that? It doesn't look like the people were in poverty. Many commentators on this say, oh, the people were suffering poverty. Actually, it doesn't look like they were suffering poverty. It's just that their economic pursuits were not working out how they had hoped they would work out. They had seed, but disappointing harvests. They had food, but they they never were able to get full. They had drink, but they were never satiated and, and satisfied. They had work and income, but it was it was never enough. That's what he says in verse 6. You so much, harvest little, eat, never have enough, drink, never have your fill, clothe yourselves, no one's warm, earn wages, but you put them in bags with, with holes. You have, but it's it's never enough. And then, God explains why it was never enough. Verses 9 to 11, He says, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And then he says, therefore, the heavens above, you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land, the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth, man, beast, and all of their labors. And they should have known this. They should have known this is how it would be. If they read Deuteronomy, if you read Deuteronomy, you can go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 to 44. God says this is exactly what He would do. If they didn't want God in their lives, He would, in essence, say, okay, that's how you want it? You don't want the God who controls the rainfall and the dew and the harvest and the productivity and gives you wine and oil and gladness. You don't want that God in your life? Then, okay. This is the consequence of that. They should have known 
what to expect. And the lesson is clear. It's clear for them. It's clear for us. If you keep God at arm's length and try to build your life without God in the center of it, controlling all things, you will never find the contentment and satisfaction for which you long, no matter how much you have. You see, the problem here was not that they didn't have enough. The problem was that it was never enough. And the reason is because their life was out of kilter. Their life was off-center. Their life was out of order. And that's how it will be for us as well. You'll have enough, but it will never be enough. Your husband, your wife will never be enough. Your job will never be enough. Your income will never be enough. Your kids will never be enough. Your parents will never be enough. Your future, your savings, your house, your car, nothing will ever be enough. Because your life, it's out of kilter. If God's not at the center thereof. What's the solution? God told them twice to to do a heart check. This wasn't a problem so much of money. It was a problem of the heart. Twice he said, take it to heart. Verse 5. It's translated here, consider your ways. It's it's very expressive. It's set this to your heart. Get, Get this to your heart. Consider your ways. And the first one is to... Consider your ways to get it, take it to heart, to understand what's the source of this constant dissatisfaction in your life. Why is that? Get to the heart of the matter to, to understand why this dissatisfaction. And then the second time in verses 7 and 8, it's reorder your priorities. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, take it to heart. And then he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. And he he says, this is a daunting task, but it's really not that that complicated. You have rubble lying all around, so you got the rocks. You've already sent off for the big timber. You just need some smaller pieces of wood. Go to the, the mountains around Jerusalem that were wooded and bring the wood and build. So first, do a heart check. Try to figure out what's wrong with your life. Why it's off kilter. Why it's off center. Why this dissatisfaction. And then... Reorder the priorities and act on those new priorities. And God says, if you will take those simple steps, go get the wood. Well, they already had wood, didn't they? They had wood on their paneled houses. He said, go get some more wood. Go get some more wood and build my house. And he says, if you'll do that, verse verse 8, he says, go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. He says, if you'll do this, I'll be glorified. I will take pleasure in the work of your hands. And then there's an implied benefit as well. And that is, you will find satisfaction. That's how it works. John Piper has made a whole ministry around this central idea. He writes many, many books, but they're dominated by one central idea. And it's the central idea that is in the first question and answer 
of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which ye, we've received in the Presbyterian Church, and it says this, what is the, the, the chief end, or what is the primary purpose of humans? The primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What's the, what's the big idea there? And, and as John Piper would say, we are... We are most satisfied when God is most glorified. We are most satisfied, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. He gets the glory, we get the satisfaction and the joy. And that's the idea here. You're not getting the satisfaction, you're not getting the joy. Well, well, then glorify God. And you'll find that your life falls more into order. And then you can find that satisfaction that is so constantly elusive for human beings. Jesus said it this way, because he was talking to some people hundreds of years later who were worried about food, drink, and clothing. Same same things. And he said this, seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things that you're running after, they'll be added to you. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we don't have a temple anymore. Especially since it was knocked down by the Romans, the temple that had been rebuilt in 70 AD. There's, there's no more temple there, at least not a physical structure. So what happened? Is the temple gone? No. The temple's transformed. Well, what's, the, what's the dwelling place of God now on earth? Where do we meet with God now? Well, John tells us, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he tells us, and the Word, the Son of God, became flesh, and He built His tabernacle among us. So you want to meet with God? You've got to go to Jesus. That, that's that's the, the place, or now the person. That's God with us. That's Emmanuel. That's where He meets with us. That's where God meets with us in Jesus. And there's no other way to meet with God except through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He's that temple. He's that access point. He's the entrance to the Father. So you want to get to God, you have to go through Jesus. The one who lived and died and rose again for those who believe in Him. But... In addition to that, is God doing anything? Is there a dwelling place that, that we can go to? Not just in prayer to Jesus, but can we can go to? And actually there is. In the New Testament it says that God's building a people. A people as His dwelling place. Now if you would ask most, most evangelical Christians in the United States, where does God dwell? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? They would say, not incorrectly, in me. And and Paul says that. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And that's not incorrect. That's correct to say, if you are a believer in Christ, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just individual. In fact, the emphasis of the New Testament is not individual, but corporate. And what is the temple of God? It's the church. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In the church, in addition to living in believers, but in the church, that's, that's where we go to meet with God. That's, that's why we gather. Why? Because God is here. 
not, not necessarily in this physical structure. God is here when the church is gathered, because that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Also in Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that you all, you yourselves, corporately, are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you in Ephesians? Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 2.19 and following, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I do not want to steal the thunder of, of uh, Haggai uh, and his later sermons. Next week, we're going to see the response of the people. But anticipating that a little bit, what would it look like for us to build the temple today? Well, it means evangelization. It means discipleship. It means sending and going as missionaries to the ends of the earth. That's how we build the temple these days. And we have to admit that tragically, too often Christians say, it's not time for that yet. We'll we'll get to that later, but it's not time for that. When we were going to head out as missionaries to another place, at first we didn't know where it ended up being Mexico, but people would tell us, You really shouldn't do that. Well-meaning Christians. It's not time for that yet. And they would say, there's a lot of work to do around here. And we need to do that first. And then think about the nations. There's a famous story about William Carey. He was a Baptist preacher in Britain. And he was a young man. He was working as a cobbler to try to keep his family alive. And he went to a meeting of of ministers, and there was an older minister who kind of ran the show there, and he would put the younger ministers on the spot, and he said, he had William Carey stand up and say, propose a question for us to discuss today. And William Carey tried to get out of it, but then he forced him, and he said, well, I'd like to propose the question of, of should we use means to try to get the gospel out to the nations? And this was the response of the older minister. Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. An enthusiast was not a compliment. You are an enthusiast. God will save the heathen when he wants to without consulting you or me. Sit down. What was he saying? Not time. We just need to take care of our house. And then some point, maybe, worry about the nations out there. Well... We're thankful that William Carey didn't sit down. He wrote a tract about the fact that God uses means. And what are the, what are the means? We're the means. And then he put together a missionary society and they were looking for candidates to go out. And he said, well, I'll do it. And so they sent him out. And he went out and he spent the rest of his life in India taking the gospel. And they call him the, the father of modern Protestant missions. And why was that? Because he knew that the time had come. He knew that it was the time to get the gospel out to the nations. So, we need to be careful. 
always to see what time it is. To remember what time it is. And it's not just time to take care of our business. It's time to build the temple. It's time to make disciples. The time has come, my friends. This, this is the time to build the temple. Let's pray. Our God, in our worship, we sang a hymn. And I, when I'm thinking about the words, sometimes choke over them and wonder how sincerely I'm singing them. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands, take my mind, take my possessions. I won't withhold any of it, we sang. It's all for You. It's all for the growth of Your kingdom. Lord, as we listen to this challenge to the people of old, help us to take it to heart, to consider our ways, to find the source of the dissatisfaction in our lives, to find where we're off-center and recenter our lives on Christ. And then to act on our new priorities, Lord. And to put the priority where you put the priority, on the nations coming, that you might take delight in the nations, your temple, those who have come to faith in Christ, and that you might be glorified. O God, be glorified and give us, your people, satisfaction as our lives are centered on you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.